0: I'd like to have us open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, which is right where we left off last week in what I'm sure was in my 17 plus years preaching in this pulpit, the shortest sermon that I ever preached. But don't, I, don't want you, I don't want to get you too used to that, so I'm going to make up for it today, and today is going to be about an hour and 20 minutes or so. No, no, I'm only kidding. I actually got one amen when I said that. So, careful. All right. We sat, the one song we sang with the praise band today that was new had a line in it that made reference to the fact that, that death doesn't have any power over us anymore. It's one of the things that comes up in this conversation between Jesus and Peter is that he talks about how he uses Peter to be part of the foundation of the church and then says that the gates of Hades has no power, it will not prevail against it. it, has no power over it, basically. And Hades is a word that sometimes just very quickly gets translated hell, but it's really really a, a, a more complicated understanding than that. Hades refers to basically the state of being dead, or literally I think it means the place of the dead. So you can see why it's called hell, because hell is a place where people will be eternally dead because of their trespasses and sins. There's a consciousness to that eternal death because the Bible speaks of um, the smoke of their torment going up and, and you know, so it's a, it's a hard thing to think about. But, but that is the place where all sin is ultimately punished and where sinners that are unrepentant end up and sinners who are unbelieving and have no faith in the Lord Jesus where they end up. Part of the reason why Operation Christmas Child and everything else we do in our church is so important. But Just that thought, that death, which doesn't stop doing what it does, but has no power over us. Death is a reality, right? That's what Mama Gump said to Forrest Gump, right? Death is just part of life, right? Well, you know what, though? Maybe so, but it has no power over us, even if it happens. And this is, that's one of the joys and the blessings of being part of the church, the church. Because when Jesus talks to Peter here, and he talks about the power of, the, of death, really, the place of the dead not having any sway or any power over his church, what that ought to say to you is that it's a great blessing to be part of his church. Because it's not that the church doesn't come under attack. It certainly does. And it even gets attacked by death and has from the beginning. But death has no power over it. You're part of the body of Christ, and death itself has no power over the body of Christ. That's where this passage goes. Jesus and Peter have this conversation and they cover a few things. And I think that's one of the biggest highlights in it that we'll probably spend the most time talking about today. But there's a lot that we can learn, not just the theological foundation for what the church is or the theological foundation for who Jesus is or what he did, although all that's in here and that's very important. But there are things about what Jesus says to Peter and Most of what's in this passage is, I say conversation, but most of it is Jesus talking. Most of what is said by Jesus has very practical implications for your life. You ought to love the fact that you are part of his church. And by his church, of course, I I don't mean Fellowship Bible Church, but Fellowship Bible Church is part of God's amazing design for the way he manifests his church in the world. God does not manifest his church invisibly in the world. He manifests his church visibly. And you sitting here today are part of that manifest presence of Christians gathering for worship. And it is great. That is the way that... The the church is a reality whether you go to a church service or not, right? You know, but you not participating in the life of a congregation leaves you outside of the way that God manifests his body in the world, shows it to the world. And that's why it's so important that he says to Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the power of death will not prevail against it. And you and I get to be in on that. Can we pray now? And let me read this passage of scripture to you. It's, it's Matthew chapter 16. And I'll go ahead and start the reading in verse 13. But we went over some of that last week. Really, our study will concentrate on what Jesus starts to say in verse 17. But let us pray. And ask the Lord for his guidance and wisdom in our study of his word today. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, thank you so much that we could be together here today. Lord, thank you so much for everything that we've experienced in here already today. It was a great blessing to sing and to open our hearts and lift up our voices in concert unto you and offer up the fruit of our lips together and it was good for us. It was good for us to give, to support the work of, of this congregation. And it was good for us to watch as the kids came up here after all the hard work that they did. And, and, and they, they showed medals, and, and that's wonderful. And I hope they cherish those things, Lord, as great memories forever. But we know that beyond that, that, that your word was sown into them. And I pray, Lord God, that all that study and work they did would cause them to remember your word and think of it often and meditate on it and walk closely with you because of it. Like Jed was saying when he was up here, Lord, that the words of the gospel, we, over and over again, Lord God, we want them sung and said and heard because they are, they are refreshment and strength and food and life for our souls. We thank you, Lord God, for all the other things we've done here. Now we come to this time that's been set apart. I pray that we all would, Lord, set it apart. Set apart this next hour for the study of your holy word. I pray that edification of your children would happen. And if anyone has come in here today who's not received Jesus as their savior, that they would hear what they need to hear today and that you would bring them to you and that by faith they might become your child today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Matthew sixteen thirteen. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You you read that, right? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we'll stop there. Leads thematically into the next part of it as well, but we'll save that for next week. So... I want to just pick up the study right away in verse 17 because that's kind of where we left off last week. We talked about, uh, you know, the importance of the name Caesarea Philippi and talked about the significance of the different things that people said about Jesus and then how Jesus just kind of brushed that aside and got right in on what was really important, which was what do you say about me? And then Peter has this great confession. You're the Christ, which is the Messiah. You're You're it. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been looking for. You're the one that the prophets have foretold. You're the one that the law looks at. You're it. You're him. You're the Messiah. You, the son of the living God. Wow. Right? And I hope that you, wherever you're at today, which is a funny thing to say because obviously you're here, but wherever you're at in here and here and when you're out there, you know what I mean? Wherever you're at in your life, I hope you've come to realize that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good role model. He's not just a historical figure. He's not a mythical figure at all. He's real. But I hope you've come to realize that he's the Messiah. And he's the Son of God. The Son of the living God. And he is the one way of salvation for you. I mean, that's... What's not written but's really wrapped up in the confession? You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Our life is in you. Like the song said, You're my living hope. All of my hope, all of my chance for redemption and eternal life is wrapped up in you. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. I hope you've come to that realization. That prompted from Jesus then in verse 17 and through the rest of the passage, what will be the main subject for what we talk here today. There's, there's four distinct sayings here from Jesus to Peter, and each one of them can teach us something practical as, as we've already scratched the surface of the, the power of Hades, not having any sway over the church at all and and the ramifications of that for us but there's more the first thing that let's just go right through them i mean the first thing is in verse 17 jesus says that it was god the father who revealed this to you no man god the father revealed this truth to you so we see that number one god was peter's source of wisdom right and then the second thing that we'll see, which is in verse 18, which I already talked about, was that he spoke of Peter being the rock because he called him Peter, which means rock, and then says on this rock, I'll build my church. So, so Peter is part of the foundation of the church, and the really... There's a theological truth there that's very important, but the really practically astonishing is the second half of it, which he says, as I said before, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's an awesome statement. So we'll break that apart a little bit. And then the third thing that gets said uh, over in verse 19, is he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean? What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think this speaks to the special authority as an apostle that that Peter and some of the other apostles had, and I'll explain that more when I get there. But then the fourth saying, which doesn't seem to fit with the rest, after saying, uh, my father revealed this to you, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then what's the fourth one? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Doesn't seem to fit with the other three, right? But it's actually, it's a rebuke that's very strong, but it's a rebuke that, if properly understood, could and should actually be a comforting reminder to Christians about The kind of people that God uses to build his kingdom. Not marble people, but people with flaws and people with weaknesses and people that God never gives up on. All right, those are the four things. Let's go through them one at a time. Verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you. Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah is a Hebrew way of simply identifying who his, uh, well, it's his formal name, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah would indicate that his father's name was Jonah, right? So Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. And it's significant that he mentions his name formally there because he then shifts gears abruptly in the next verse when he calls him what? Peter, right? which is like his name for him. So anyway, he says, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, why? Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What's that obviously referred to? By flesh and blood, he's referring to people. In other words, no man taught you this. No one had to show you this. That's a remarkable thing. Nobody came and said to Peter, now let me explain to you why Jesus is the Messiah right? And may I say to you that to some extent, this happens in all of us as well. I'm standing up here today and I'm preaching and teaching, but all of my words are useless apart from the work of God himself, the Holy Spirit living in us, taking those and teaching. That's why Jesus said, I will send my helper and he'll live in you. And he said that, uh, Jesus said that uh, you know, have no need that any man teaches you. And these, these famous sayings, it's, it almost is hard to put together. Why does Jesus say you don't have any need that any man teaches you, but then anoints and appoints and gifts teachers and calls them in the church? Well, there's a, there's a, a, a faculty, there's, a, there's an aptitude and an activity known as teaching that God takes and uses, right? But the actual work that gets done in a man or in a woman, in a person, that work is done by God himself. And, and that's comforting to know that our God is with us and our God will work in us like that. But he says here to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but what? My father who is in heaven. Now, this is a tremendous, tremendous truth that God revealed to Peter what he needed to know in that moment and what he needed to know for his life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the book of Proverbs says. That is to say, to trust in the Lord, to recognize who he is, and to fear, to be in awe of him, and to have faith in him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you better know who God is, not just his name, or not like of which people is he God, but who really is he? And you know, when you read the Bible and you learn the, you learn God's word, you begin to see the identity of God and what he's really about and who he really is. But what we're told here is that God the Father revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. And so God himself becomes Peter's source of wisdom. God is Peter's source of wisdom. How many of you today need wisdom? How many of us today, this is a, this is the participatory part. How many of you today need wisdom? Wisdom for your life. It's okay to raise your hand. You do. God sees the heart that's attached to the hand. You need wisdom. We need guidance. We need knowledge. We need to learn from the Lord, right? And here you see that the, the Lord in this incredible, amazing moment, becomes Peter's source of knowledge and wisdom. I want you to see something, just a little, it may seem it's like it's off the beaten path, but it kind of, as I was thinking through this sermon, it led me to, to thinking about the fact that God is like this infinite source of wisdom. And he's there for us. I want you to see something that I've probably read in the past, but Keep your thumb here or something and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And we know all about the context of Proverbs that it's basically Solomon writing to his son, older generation writing to younger generation, and trying to pass off practical wisdom. And the interesting thing about the book of Proverbs is it actually does not directly refer to God as much as you would think books in the Bible would. However, verse 19 very specifically talks about the Lord, doesn't it? What does it say? Chapter 3 and verse 19 of the book of Proverbs. Listen to this. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. Now get this by understanding he established the heavens by his knowledge the depths were broken up as the cloud as the clouds drop down the dew and of course then the application of that is my son let them not depart from your eyes keep sound wisdom and discretion discretion being the application of wisdom right you know being able to discern between right and wrong because you're wise and what is it? There'll be great, There'll be life to your soul and grace to your neck. You'll walk safely in your way. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you won't be afraid. Yes, you'll lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Don't be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Sound like the way you want to live your life? You want that for your life as a believer in the Lord? Well, wisdom is the thing that we need. And this is prefaced by pointing out that the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. That is to say, when we read through the book of Genesis, and you just read and you say, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And properly, the understanding you should have is that that's literal. God spoke and things came into existence. That's a demonstration of God's power. What maybe is a little lost in just reading the Genesis account, not that there's anything inadequate about the Genesis account, is that it wasn't just some whimsical thing where God spoke and things just appeared. Look, it says by wisdom he founded the earth. That is to say, the natural processes that exist in what we would call the scientific world, which to God isn't the scientific world. To God, it's just his own mind right? Anything that we learn or understand that's true was something that originated with God. When you learn something like scientifically, what you're learning is the application, either the existence of or the application of properties that emanated from God, right? When they discovered gravity, God knew that. God like founded it. God invented it, right? You know, and, and, and think, you know, the immune system is one of the things that always blows me away. And the capacity for the human body to heal. And we'll perform surgeries and we'll do treatments and we'll apply medicines and things like that. But all those things do is uh, attempt to prod along or work with or manipulate the natural design of God into the human body which is a wonderful thing that God has, by his grace, revealed that wisdom to men to be able to do that, as we mention all the time when we pray for people and such. But, you know, listen, God, by wisdom, founded the earth, by understanding, established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up. Everything you see, yes, it came out of his mouth, but it also came out of his mind. photosynthesis came out of God's brain. Do you understand that? The cycle of water, evaporation and rain and dew. It mentions it right here. It talks about, uh, by his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. By God's knowledge, like God knew that if I make the sun just so-and-so, And I create the solar system just so and so. And I put the earth in orbit just so and so. And tilt it just so and so. And cause it to rotate just so and so. What will happen is there will be a cycle of water, of rain and running water and evaporation and whatever the, uh, I I don't, I'm not a scientist. So I don't know all that. But listen, you know that, you know that that all came from God's mind. And then it all came into existence when he said, let it. That's God. Now look at James 1.5. Now look at James 1.5. Remember this? Not too long ago we went over this. It's specifically speaking into the context of going through trials in your life. Anybody here go through trials in their life? Oh, you're you're getting the raising your hand thing. That's good. I I like that. You're catching on. And if you didn't raise your hand, it's just because you don't want to participate because I know you've gone through trials in your life. We're actually told in this passage to count it joy when you do. But then verse 5 says what? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask ask of God. Now listen, who's God? God is the one who thought of everything that you can see. God is the one who thought of the speed of light. God is the one who thought of the cosmos and the order of it. God is the one who thought of, of, of everything at the macro level of the universe down to the micro level of the human body the capacity for humans to emote and reason and be ethical and moral. All of that came from God's thought. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. How's that for a well to dip into? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Without reproach. Why does he need to say that? Because we might think it's shameful that we don't just know everything because we're proud. And what God says is, I'm not going to add any reproach if you ask me for wisdom. I'm pleased to tell you what you need. And the specific context is when you're going through a trial, that's often what it is that we need, is wisdom. Going back to James now. I feel like I'm back there a few months ago we are going through James. But... That's really what is often needed, is how do I get through? Well, this is a great blessing, is that God is the source of wisdom. When is the last time that something hard came up in your life and you were in a season that was just difficult and you just decided, you know what, I'm turning to God, and that's it? And not just when things are hard, but anything, every day, all the time. Let him be the fountain of your wisdom. Turn to him. Make it a habit. Make it a practice. Make it a discipline. Right? Be diligent in your pursuit of him. He's the rewarder of such, the Bible says. Right? Back in Matthew. You can go back to Matthew now. I took my thumb out of it, so I have to look it up again. He is the source of Peter's wisdom and he should be the source of ours as well. Now, second thing, verse 18. And I also say to you, so so he said to him, you're blessed because God, my father, revealed this to you. People didn't, my father did. And I also say to you, note the word also, I'm going to add on to that. Not only are you blessed because God, my father, revealed this to you, but I'm also going to say to you this, you're Peter, right? He just called him what? Simon Barjona. Hey, Simon Barjona, you're Peter. Hey, Simon, you're a rock. That's what Peter means, Petros. You're a rock. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. My What? my church which us looking back is like of course we understand what that means but the word ecclesia means a body of people that has been called out of society out of the world literally ecclesia means called out people i'm gonna call a whole bunch of people out of the world and you're gonna be the foundation that i build it on now let's listen that's heady stuff right And that's just the first half of it. The second half of it is the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now, listen, this is great. There's a few different ways that people interpret this. You're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And let me name a few of them. And I'm not an expert in all this stuff, but I've thought about this a lot. I've prayed about it a lot. My head has been it a lot. And I believe there's other scripture that makes it clear that we'll turn to in a moment. There is the Roman Catholic understanding of this verse, which I don't think is correct. It's a stretch. And that is that Peter is the foundation of the church. And this concept is even used to, just to, 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 to make up what I don't think can be borne out historically at all, which is that Peter was somehow the first Roman pope. It, it, the history is just not there, Right? And so that's, but that is an interpretation of this that over a billion people in the world accept. But if you read it, it's not what he's saying, right? And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But the idea, that's one interpretation that Peter is the foundation of the church. Number two, and this is one that I kind of came up as a new Christian. And I think in some like Baptist churches, maybe maybe other similar kinds of evangelical churches, they take the view that what Jesus is saying here, watch me now, you have to look at me when I do this. What, what, what Jesus is saying is, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I, I grew up, now I, I have to tell you that I don't think that just works with the plain understanding of what's being said. It's not like Jesus to be that confusing, to say to someone, you're a rock, and on this foundation, I'm going to, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then in the next statement, he says what? I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom and everything you bind on. It. I mean, listen, we don't need to be afraid of the fact that Jesus is saying something special to Peter here, okay? So the third, the third interpretation of this, and this one has a good deal of plausibility, is that the rock that he's referring to when he says you are Peter and on this rock what he's talking about is the confession that he just made. The rock is the confession that you are the Christ. So hey, you're Peter and on this rock, meaning what you just said that the uh, I am the Christ, or you are the Christ and you're the son of the living God. That's what I'm going to build my church on. There's a good deal of plausibility to that. And yet I think if I may be so bold, that what Jesus is probably really getting at here, and this is why it's important to read the Bible and understand it all, is something that's corroborated by something that the Apostle Paul says later. And when he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, he's not, when he says on this rock, he means Peter and the rest of them. Peter is like the spokesman for all of the apostles in that moment. Because you can see that as the passage goes on, it says in verse 19, what it says about binding and loosing. And then in verse 20, he commanded his disciples. So even though he's talking to Peter, he's really talking to all of them. And then when you get into verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples what he must go through. And then Peter, again, is the one who speaks up. But, but what I think Jesus is doing here is he's setting aside these people as being the foundation of the church, right? Now, I want you to see what the Apostle Paul came to understand and wrote when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. You're probably familiar with this, but turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two, we all know verse, you know, the, the great doctrine of salvation: "By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he launches into a section where he says in verse 11, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision, but then you were called in, you have been made near. Verse 13 says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, that is the Jew and the Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Look at this. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. What's that one body? He them both to God in one body through the cross, right? So he's reconciling us through the body of Christ, who was which was sacrificed on the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It's how the Jew and the Gentile equally are made saved through faith in Christ. And then we're put into something. What is that thing that we're put into? The church. Verse 19. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, you ready? Here's the key. You ready? Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner, or the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so what I think the work that Jesus is doing and we're being shown here clearly is is that he himself is the chief cornerstone, and as it says in here, he is the source of everything that the church needs. And then what he chose to use to lay the foundation for that church, beyond just himself being the cornerstone, what he chose to use to build up the church is on the foundation of the apostles. And so when he says to Peter, you're Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, He's setting him and his fellow disciples who are there up to ultimately become this band of apostles upon whom indeed he has built the foundation of his church with himself being the chief cornerstone. Now look, there's hymns you can sing. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord, right? And we should sing that hymn because it's true. He is our one foundation, but we won't want to... We don't want to be so rigid with the illustrations that he uses that Christ can't, in his own power to describe his own ministry, use different descriptions to describe different things. And I think that that's what is going on here, is that Paul corroborates what Jesus is saying about using the apostles to be foundational to the church. In what way were the apostles foundational to the church? In what way? Well, what did they do? I mean, that's the easiest one. I mean, regardless of what Paul says here, what did the apostles do after Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven? What did they do? They preached. They preached and lots of people got saved. And you read in Acts chapter 2, Peter, the very one that he's talking about and talking to here in this passage, you read him preaching a sermon and 3,000 souls are added that day, right? And then you read at the end of Acts chapter 2 that They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and fellowship and in prayer. What is that? That's the church. That's the beginning of the church. So you can see right in the book of Acts how he uses the apostles as the foundation of his church. What do they do? They preach. They form congregations and churches, especially the apostle Paul, who We have great insight in the New Testament into what God did through him in the book of Acts and even from the work that God did inside Paul through his writing, we can see so much of what becomes foundational instruction for Christians, right? Because the apostles can be seen as a foundation for the church in what they did in preaching the gospel, in starting churches, and in what other very important function. Where do you think this comes from? I mean, for the most part, everything you read in what you call your New Testament came to us through this band of apostles or their very, very, very close associates. Right? You read Matthew, Matthew we're reading is one of the apostles. Mark was a close companion to Peter, one of the apostles. Luke was a close companion to Paul, one of the apostles. John was one of the apostles. Paul wrote in the New Testament. Right? Obviously, one of the the, one of the the great apostles, right? Peter wrote in the New Testament. John wrote in the later in the New Testament. James, who is not one of the apostles per se, but was a close, close associate of them and a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Himself, as was Jude. So the New Testament comes to us through this foundation. And that's the foundation of the church. Preach the gospel, form the church. Write the Bible. That's what they did. Pretty good job they did too, right? All glory and praise to the Lord. But that's what the Lord did is he laid the foundation for Christianity as we know it through these people. And he announced it when Peter recognized who he really was, the Messiah. Now, I've made much of that. But the really astonishing part of all of this is where I started my introduction today and is this second part of it. He says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And what? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Death, no power over the church. Death has always been an enemy from the church. Jesus, the chief cornerstone, died Right? But he rose from the dead and conquered death and ascended back to heaven. Every one of the apostles died. And tradition holds that most of them died brutally as martyrs. Many other believers were persecuted and killed. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, when it talks about the faith of many of our fathers, it speaks about how people who had faith in God and were justified by faith, died for that faith and the the torments that some of them have gone through. In the history of Christianity, you can read account after account, books about martyrs and things like this, where you read about how Christians stood upon the truth of the word of God and on the truth of the gospel and were persecuted and killed for it. It still goes on prolifically in the world today. We don't see it necessarily here. We are perhaps shielded from it because of the modern, progressive-ish kind of culture that we live in. But there are still many places in the world where faith in Jesus, openly declared, stood on and preached to others, will get you arrested, will get you jailed, and maybe even killed. For all of that, what do you see the church in the world doing? Marching on, going on, moving on. It keeps going on, and the Lord continues to build it. And for all the ways that death tries to come up against the church, it has no power over the church, just like Jesus said Death will not prevail against the church. And may I add that that is a little picture of the ultimate experience of every Christian, which is our salvation. Though physically, unless we live to the time that the Lord Jesus returns, every one of us will physically die. Though that is true, death has no power over us. We are told that even if we die in our bodies We don't really die. I mean, that's what Jesus announced at the funeral of Lazarus, right? You know, I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, right? Which he wept at the funeral. But Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus died, right? Jesus announced that Lazarus was dead before he even left to go to Bethany, right? I mean, you know that, right? So Jesus knew it already. And Jesus already knew what? That his death was for the glory of God. So Jesus, why did Jesus weep? He wept because he was surrounded by all of the other weeping. Because he was surrounded by people that didn't yet fully understand that death has no power over the body of Christ. Over his own body or over his supernatural body, which is us. And what did he say? Though you will die, Yet you shall live, and he who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the fact that death has no power over the church is a little picture of how death has no power over the individuals who comprise that church. Did you know that death is personified as an enemy in the book of Revelation? I want you to see it. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 it says this I saw on a great white throne, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. There's a scary statement right there. What you don't want to be judged is according to your works in this judgment because you have no chance because we've all sinned. And our works never can justify us or never make an impression upon God. It is only by His grace through faith in Jesus that we're saved. And so these are the small and great who died without faith in Christ. all of them standing before God. Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler standing in the same crowd along with every other person who died without Christ. Think of that. Open up the books. And what are those books? Records of your works. Well, not if you're in Christ. Christ. If you're in Christ, the only work that matters is that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, right? But if you're not in Christ, the works are all recorded, and then you open up one last book, which is the book of life, and their names are not in it. Look at this, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one, according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Death itself. Death and Hades, the place of the dead, are cast into hell. That's why hell and Hades can't be the same thing, right? Because death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. In other words, there is coming a time when literally death won't exist anymore. It's judged because Christ conquered it and defeated it. That's why when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It's so awesome and it's so powerful. See, here's our problem. You ready? Our problem is, here's why we struggle so much with this. Something will happen and someone will die. And it's not, it's not inappropriate to grieve when someone dies. You should. But you should not sorrow like someone who has no hope, is what First Thessalonians said. Our problem is this. We place more value on this temporary life than the Bible does. That's our problem. That really is our problem. We place so much value on here and now, and it's skewed from what the Bible does. Do you know, do you know where this passage goes next, just to make my point? I mean, right after all of this conversation, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? See, our problem is, our problem is we know that and we say amen and we say yes. And then we go out and try to gain the whole world with our lives. And when we see other people seeming to do it, we're jealous. We feel like something's wrong. But we place, we place a preciousness and sacredness on this life that can at times be idolatrous because it's out of order with what the Bible says about life here and now, which is what? It is temporary. Temporary and passing away, and full of trouble, and will always be. In the world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because I'm going to fix it. No, be of good cheer because I've overcome it. Its days are numbered. You've hit your wagon to me, Jesus says, and everything will be fine for you. We treat this life like it's all we've got That's how the average person lives. It must not be how the Christian. Look, when I say lives, of course, it doesn't mean to go out and be careless. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the things that God allows you to enjoy. It doesn't mean you shouldn't grieve at the loss of a loved one. But you cannot treat this life like it's all you've got, because in fact, that is not the reality. If you're in Christ, you're not. Living now, what is ultimately the reward for having been chosen by him and drawn to him through his love and through his grace and given repentance and faith, this great gift of God? The ultimate gift of God is not what you experience here and now? The ultimate gift of God is what is coming. That's why, that's why the statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against His church is so important. The church gets attacked. Why do you think when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, "Lead, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why are we taught to pray like that? May I ask you, do you pray like that? When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, sorry, the, see, even I do it, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When he says that, what does that imply? It implies that the gates of Hades attack it, Right? Otherwise, there would be no need to promise that the gates of, you know, death will not prevail against the church, but death does attack the church. Death attacks the church through temptation and sin. Death attacks the church. Listen, Satan attacks the church. He walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's Christians that he's talking about. He doesn't look to devour people who aren't in Christ because they're already his, so to speak. Not literally, but. But we're told to pray because the church does come under attack. But you're supposed, here's what what the practical advice is for the Christian trust him. Pray and trust him. And don't set your heart or your trust on this life or on the things of the world. Don't bank on this life being all you've got. Nothing could be more counterintuitive to the message of the Bible, which is that the world and everything in it is going, all the elements are going to be burned up and destroyed. The very Peter who was told, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, is the one who later wrote in his, one of his epistles that all of these elements will be burned up with a loud noise and with fervent heat. Peter certainly recognized that this life was not it. Well, let's go on to the third point. We'll go through some of it. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And next thing, third thing, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'll just introduce this briefly, and then we'll sing our last hymn, and we'll be done for the day. What Jesus is doing here. Is he is giving a just like he called the apostles to be the foundation. He also gave them a special authority. They had a certain special authority. When we go through this next week, I'll show you examples in the book of Acts where the apostles had gifts and abilities to be able to do things. You know, like uh, you know, saying to Ananias and Sapphira, basically, you're going to die today. You know, I mean, that's not something you see the typical Christian walking around and just saying to each other, you know, today and and, and having it happen. But there was a certain amount of special authority that he gave to Peter that was for the use of his ministry. You know, I don't even want to dive into it that much now that I think about it. I think I want to save it for next week because I really want you to go home. I really want you to leave here with the thought in your head, this whole idea that death has no power over his church and death has no power over you if you're in christ and what you ought to want to be then is in christ and in his church right right isn't that the obvious conclusion that anyone who reads this should draw i want if he's the christ the son of the living god i want him and if if the if death has no power over his church i want to be in his church Give yourself fully to Christ in faith and give yourself fully to the manifest exemplified presence of his church, which is your local congregation in your life. And live and live not thinking that this life is it. Get that thought gone. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. I wish I had more time. All right. Let's, uh, let's have Jed and Fanny come on up here and lead us in our last hymn.